This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett titled "Who Needs to Meditate," recorded March sixteenth, two thousand and fourteen, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, Joel's not here, right? Joel, you here? Not here. So he's not checking up on me and stuff like that. So, so normally Joel introduces, you know, everything with a with a very quiet meditation. We all sit and observe our breathing. And by the way, that's a wonderful practice, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> but I'm sort of making fun of it right now because I've been meeting a lot of people that really think that meditation is kind of silly. Meditation allows us to see things in a little different way. And so this business of just putting attention on the breathing, just on the naked sensations of breathing, we're given a break from our mind for just a moment. And as we get that break, consciousness itself is informed through that process just by not thinking ourselves into existence moment by moment. Something starts to brighten up. But I'm sort of making fun of it right now because Human beings cannot meditate. It's not possible. So with that in mind, <laughs> let's embark on our morning meditation. <laughs> Here Todd silently holds up a flower for about 10 minutes. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation on a flower or some other apparent object. Then start your player again and continue with the program. 1400 years ago, the Buddha gave is now called the Flower Sermon. It was a silent sermon, just like what we saw just now. And in giving this sermon, before 500 monks and nuns. In the midst of it, I was waiting for somebody to do this. One of the monks stood up, and he was beaming, and he bowed deeply to the Buddha, and he walked out. And he was awakened. His name was Maha Kashyapa. In that moment, he was awakened. It was a direct dharma transmission of suchness, of the inherent truth of all things. The truth of the non-dual nature, devoid of any distinctions at all. And some believe that this flower sermon was actually the beginning of Zen Buddhism even well before Zen Buddhism actually came into existence with Wei Ming back in, what, 600 A.D. And with Wei Ming, you see, it was a similar thing to Maha Kashyapa. He was in the marketplace. He was a woodcutter, illiterate. And he heard someone speaking the Diamond Sutra. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. 
And somehow, in that moment, his consciousness dropped down into the stillness between forms, between arising images, and he recognized the truth. His mind opened up. And so in Zen, then after that, we have this direct school. The teachings of Zen, of direct enlightenment through just seeing. And But if you look at Zen, there's a lot of meditation going on in those Zendos. And they have a lot of koan practices. And they even have the stick. So if you're not paying good enough attention, your, your eyes are kind of drifting. The master comes over and whacks you. So they're really into meditation. So you don't really, you don't really get from this flower sermon that, it's, that meditation is a waste of time unless you just don't realize the background here. The thing about meditation is we look at this and we think, well, if reality is that obvious, then why don't we just see it? I mean, shouldn't it just be obvious? And isn't meditation just a big distraction? And besides, we have quotes like this from the Buddha. He says, Enlightenment is not a proposition of philosophy, but is an, ex an intuitive experience, as real as though it was an amalka fruit held in the palm of the hand. It's that obvious. Is it that obvious? Come on. What are we doing all this meditation for? Well, Tibetan master Sakni Rinpoche says this. He says, it's important to recognize that many of the teachers these days talk of not needing to meditate. If your attention is stable and clear, there is no need. But to want to avoid practice to get to the good stuff that's just worldly mind. But what's the problem with worldly mind? I mean, come on, it's, it's what we do all the time. It's, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Well, that's the thing, you see. Most of us that are here today are here because worldly mind is not satisfying. When we're a kid, we're appreciating everything we see. We're this childlike curiosity. We love to play. And it's all magic. But then we get, we get kind of hung up in our expectations. We have plans. We have goals. And they become habituated to the point that they become our identity. So when Sakni Rinpoche speaks of the worldly mind, he's speaking of something very specific. It is this mind that is never satisfied. It's samsara. But we always think, you know, we hear stories about samsara being out in the world, but now it's not out in the world, it's in our own mind. Samsara is the nature of mind, small mind. The flower sermon was not given to a bunch of people that had not been practicing. In fact, the people that he was giving this sermon to were well prepared to hear it. They had been given practices. Actually, this flower sermon was given towards the end of the Buddha's life. And 
these monks and nuns had been his disciples for many, many years. And so it wasn't that they were new. This is, this is sort of a culmination of teaching. He had given them all that he could say. And now he presented something that was more aligned with the truth. All of these other teachings are pointing toward practices. They're pointing toward something that you can do to discover for yourself. But oftentimes what we hear is, oh, that's how reality is. He's telling us about how reality is. But in fact, no. He's, he's pointing to something and asking us to look and see for ourselves. Because if you hear it, doesn't matter if it's from the Buddha, and you try to believe it, it will only delude you. Doesn't matter how wonderful the teaching is. Preliminary practices are compassionate teachings from the mystics. They're compassionate because they show us the source of our dissatisfaction, our unhappiness. Just as we might help a blind person across the street, we direct them, we help them, we show them the way. And the Buddha, once again, in the Dhammapada says this. He says, there is blindness all around. Very few can see. Many are like birds trapped in a net, while a few escape and achieve liberation. The problem with delusion is that we can't see the net. We don't recognize it. And that's because we have all of these distinctions that we hold to be real. And they distract attention from what is real into these distinctions, which are not real, but we hold them to be real. And because we cling to them, we have to work very hard. And that process of working very hard to make them real takes up all of our energy. We can't notice what's actually here. So meditation then becomes a practice in which all forms of experience are examined. Thoughts. What is a thought? We don't even know what it is, but we assume we do. And we live our lives in that way. All day long, thoughts are chattering through. We use them. They're a tool for us but we don't recognize the mystery of what's taking place. We fixate in the content of the thought and we don't see what is actually here. And then emotions. What is an emotion? What is anger? What is sorrow? But what we do is we see these things, we feel them, and we are fully identified with them. They become us. They are who we are. But is that true? We have to question that. But why would we? Everything tells us they're real. And then there are beliefs. Just our beliefs in what is. We need to investigate them. We need to look into our beliefs. Are they really true? 
And then we have our habit energies, where we think we understand, where we really have a glimpse into reality in the next moment. We're being carted off by habits, habits of mind. So all of these things become the subject matter for our meditations. And there are very specific practices for all of these. And they all grow out of that basic meditation that we do every Sunday here. Well, we didn't do it today. (laughs) But that meditation actually is very helpful for us. There is lots of resistance to meditation, even once we get to the point where we want to meditate. We discover this, right? How many people here have gotten a meditation practice and thought it was just wonderful forever? (laughs) there's always this resistance to it the resistance to practice is actually really it's the main point of it because we want to at some point come to recognize resistance recognize it see it recognize how it is operating and what it is based on But then, you know, we're resisting it and we read something like this and we are totally put off. And here's what we heard. The thing called enlightenment is nothing that can be attained by practicing, nor can it be created by human hands. So, see, I told you in the beginning. It's like, why are we doing this stuff? What is this about? Well... There is another side to this. An undistracted attention is an attention that is more likely to wake up. The meditations don't necessarily make it happen, and you can't really say that there's a causal relationship. But it does allow the mind to settle. And it does allow attention to become more sublime, to notice what is taking place, to actually see into the nature of things. But still we have this resistance. And it is part of the the delusion itself. So if we recognize, when we go to sit, we recognize, oh, I don't want to do this today. I got other stuff to do. And I mean, he's sitting on a cushion, not getting anything done, you know, it's kind of a waste of time. (laughs) This is the self. And the self manifests in lots of ways. But it's an emotional issue, because the self is an emotional issue. And so right there we have something to examine. When we first get started in meditation, maybe it's not the time. We just return to the breath. You know, the mind goes off, we return to the breath. After we develop a little stability with our attention, then we can start to examine things. And this, this business of resistance arising right in the midst of our meditation. It's the perfect opportunity to look at it. Because our mind, at this point along the path, has become somewhat stable, and now and we can examine what is this? Well, we don't like looking at self for one thing, because we don't really like 
the self. I mean, it's a very interesting thing when we really start looking at it. We find ourselves, and you can see it. You're off in fun. You're running away. You don't want to... What you'd rather do is go to a movie. Or go, what, skydiving. Or something. Something that makes you forget about self. We don't want to really see it. We don't want to know it. We want to come from it, but we don't want to actually look at it. Actually, the whole point of practice is to see into the nature of self. We say that, well, we want to see into the nature of things. We want to see into the nature of all phenomena. But all phenomena are coming through the guise of self. They are my experiences. I see that face. I see that person. Boredom. Boredom arises when we aren't getting what we want. When we feel like we need something more. Right there, we have the opportunity to look into the mind of wanting. Wanting something more. What does it want? It wants to be happy. It really wants happiness. We see this. It comes up all the time. Thoughts arise in the middle of meditation. It wants to, it wants happiness. It wants to feel better. It wants to feel better. But the problem is, this whole thing leads us in a big circle. We can't actually attain happiness that way. So, if resistance to practice becomes so powerful that it actually obstructs our ability to do the practice, then we need to look. We need to look at our own motivation for doing the practice. Why did we start practicing in the first place? What is it? Maybe we don't need to practice. Maybe we're right. But the only way to know is to look into your motivation. What motivates you? And once again, if you're honest and true to your own, your own heart, you begin to discover that yes, there is a dissatisfaction that cuts through all of my worldly striving. There's something that is insatiable here. And with that, we can then once again take heart and return to the practice. And that's the way practice is for a long time in the beginning. We'll practice for a while, we'll become very, wow, revved up, yeah, seeing stuff, uh, yeah, and then... <laughs> It dries up. It's like we something happens, but we're just not seeing it. We're not recognizing anything. But that doesn't mean that consciousness is not still informing itself. But we go with the mind because the mind is always telling us everything. All the time. Constantly. But once we take heart, then we can return. An anonymous Buddhist author tells us this. And this is something that we read often at the beginning of our silent retreats. And it is helpful because it points right to the, to the issue. And it kind of cuts through resistance. It says, let me respectfully remind you life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Let us strive to awaken, awaken, take heed, 
Do not squander your life. And that really has that, that resonance. It sort of captivates what we feel inside. And it pulls us forward. And the practices become a little bit more approachable. Don't wait for your deathbed. Don't wait. Now is the time. Of course, this is your deathbed. (laughs) And when we look a little bit, we discover that. We don't have time. This life is a blink in eternity. But didn't he just say something about striving to awaken? We hear that. Didn't we just a ways back and just a few minutes ago say something about how enlightenment cannot be attained through any striving? So what's he getting at? Maybe this guy's pulling our leg here. It's all sounds wonderful and everything, but hmm, not so sure now. But if we hear the poet Hafiz, he tells us this. He says, Although union with the beloved is never given as a reward for one's efforts, strive, O heart, as much as you are able. So there's something about striving. What is it? And the problem really is self-centered striving. And that's a problem because, well, there is no self. We may not recognize that now, and maybe we do. There is no self. There is the identification with images that, we, that constitute a story that we take to be real. We've reified it. And that's what the self is. So if we are striving for self to awaken, It's going to be a long, hard road. (laughs) Consciousness is what awakens to itself. And then, of course, we have the words of Lama Lodo, who says, if anyone says, I am going to achieve enlightenment, this grasping prevents him from reaching a non-dual state. Complete enlightenment is always for the sake of other beings. So that's interesting. That's not selfish. But how would we, how would we get there? I'm going to do it for other beings? Well, within meditation, we have these practices that allow us to bring our attention into our own heart and to recognize how we have layered it with all kinds of shielding. And we have practices that help us to open our hearts. And when we open our hearts, we find our own intrinsic compassion. And we look out and we begin to see others struggling. We see we see in people's eyes their, their suffering, their difficulty. And, we, and it opens up our hearts to them. And then it's very easy to do this bodhisattva vow, to vow to help all beings to achieve enlightenment. And that can be the whole motivation for your practice. When you sit, especially if you've got a little resistance, temper it with this. Maybe a little contemplation of 
all the suffering beings and the wish that they all come to know the truth. And this meditation, you doing this meditation, can help in that way because as you become clearer, your awakening can benefit all beings. You can then help others. Even one other person, it's worth it. So this business of striving for the non-dual state is something well worth looking at. And meditation can be pointed right at this emotion of desire, self, selfish desire, wanting itself, wanting. And within wanting, we can see that the process of wanting is really a process that never ends because it's always wanting something more. So even if something real and true comes to us, we are already in the habit of wanting. So we see it and we go, okay, next, (coughs) next, because we're in that mode. But as as we actually rest attention with the striving, we're with the striving. We're with what is now. It doesn't matter that it's something that we hold to be nasty in some way. We see it just as it is. And when we see in that way, there's nothing wrong with it. We're not running after anything. We're right there with that feeling, that emotion, that grasping. This is an interesting process because as we do meditation practice, what we are cultivating is an attention that is not colored by that which we are observing. So as we look at things, we begin to see in our attention itself a little flinching, a little irritation. We're looking at something else. We're looking, say, we're looking at our wanting and we're and we're feeling a kind of a rebellion in our attention itself. So then what is needed is we want to turn our attention into that coloring that's right there in our attention. Because an attention that is colored by experience is not the true witnessing attention that we're, that we're desiring here. The true witnessing attention is like a laboratory. It doesn't have any preferences. It's just aware. And this is what we begin to cultivate when we, when we work with it in this way. It's like we, we are developing a naturalist, a naturalist, a way of impartiality. And so when we observe these things, it is like being in a laboratory. We see that that niggling sense of irritation and we just shift the attention ever so slightly and see that. And in seeing it, it's no longer a part of the attention that's looking. It's perfect. It's a perfect model. And all we need to do is practice it. It's like we are reprogramming our conditioning, which is normally to look away or to identify with the grasping and to run with it. Now we are actually noticing all of the phenomena which we call the story of I and the ways that they are arising. 
And in this way, this basic distraction, which really creates the story of I, this, this essential distraction from reality begins to resolve. And we start having glimpses of reality. We start having epiphanies. We start to see, just in a moment, we're not even trying to see it. But we just, we know. We know the truth. It isn't an idea. It's just, we know. And, and, and in that moment, we look at our, our ideas about the truth, and they just wither, because they have no bearing. As we witness phenomena such as thought, emotion, boredom, we begin to notice something about all of them, which they all have in common. And that is that they are, they are impermanent. They don't, they don't stick around. But the mind holds them in a way that makes it seem like they are the only thing that is real when they're there. And they're solid. A thought arises, and it's real to us because the thought is reverberating. It's like it's an echo. We, we're hearing it over and every time we put attention, there it is. It's like it's solid. It's there. We don't actually notice that it keeps coming into being. It's not constant. It's constantly new. So this is a breakthrough when we start to see this about thought. Emotions, same thing. It's always new. We feel the sadness, but when we start putting our attention into the sadness with this unconditioned awareness, attention, resting there. We're not sad. We see the sadness, and when we see it, it's not our identity. We recognize that. And this is really the way this process operates. Now we see transience. And once again, we start questioning whether this is really what we want to be doing. Because when we really see into impermanence, it's frightening. We really see when our attention is still. Things are actually not transient in the way our mind tells us they are. Oh, things get worn out after a while. Time passes. These are stories to kind of blunt the reality of the true impermanence. The true impermanence is radical. And when attention is not grasping at forms, at thought, emotion, whatever, when it's not grasping, it begins to see everything is coming into being just now. It's coming into being and passing away. It never actually becomes anything at all. It's shocking to the mind. But we can't, we can't get that as an idea. It's just, it just doesn't work in the brain. It doesn't work in the mind. The mind is geared to see things in a very specific way. And this really almost steps out of what can be said. We realize something. We have been striving our whole life for happiness. And now we see 
the happiness we strive for is always going to be passing. It's never going to be what we want it to be. We'll get our way, and it'll be wonderful. And in that moment of it being wonderful, we attribute it to having gotten what we wanted. But in fact, it's only because for that moment, we're not wanting something. We're not wanting in that moment. When we're not wanting, we're not there. Wanting defines self. Grasping and pushing away define self. And grasping and pushing away really are one thing. It's just grasping. (coughs) Pushing away is just another form of it. It's the movement between hope and fear. Hope and fear. As long as we're on on that treadmill, we are engaged in the samsaric mind. But when we see that that treadmill is just a story, what a huge relief but we have to actually experience it and recognize it. The happiness that we've been seeking is actually the happiness that is already here, and we just don't see it. We don't recognize it. Abino Rabi, one of the Sufis that Joel quotes a lot, says this, he says, Know that the paradise which is predestined for those who will come to it in the next life is before your eyes already. This very day. You are there now, but you don't know it. We need to discover this for ourselves. So we begin to look to see Is that true? When we're looking, when we're actually paying attention, we'll notice in moments that we're not striving, those are the moments that those little epiphanies take place where we just feel spontaneously happy. It's not like we attained something. It's that we lost something. We lost that desire for something more. Needing something more is the veil. It's the story of I. The story of I is all about that. In seeing these things, we discover a basic simplicity. And in this simplicity, the emptiness of thought and emotion is witnessed even more deeply. It has little impact on us. We begin to see all occurrences, thoughts, feelings, forms, doesn't matter. All of them are like radiances of consciousness. We see it more and more. They're rising just now and passing away. And they have no form, actually, in themselves. Just as Hui Ning heard this this Diamond Sutra, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than form. That we have this experience, and then we hear that teaching, it's like, ah, of course, of course, we 
see it. We discover it. And we discover it through these practices. Just by allowing attention to open. Settle. Outside of all the grasping and pushing away. The essence of our our being, you know, we talk about everything arising and passing away. There is something that is always here. Always present. And we come to know that. We come to recognize that. Firsthand. It's this. This water jug. flower. It's the stillness. The stillness that is at the core and the heart. It's that stillness in which all phenomena are constantly arising out of and returning to constantly. If you discover that everything is constantly arising and passing away, you start to recognize the stillness. The stillness starts to move into the foreground of your experience. It's like dust being blown in the wind. You can't see the wind. But when the dust is in the wind, you suddenly you see the wind. Take it away. So this is something the mind will never really get this. But when we rest our attention and we rest that grasping, we start to see it. We start to see it in a way that when we look around, we recognize it everywhere. It's everywhere. You cannot escape this. Well, we can pretend to. And that's what we do. So this stillness that is always present It's nothing. You can't come to know it as a thing. Just like I said before, it's like the wind. And we see it by the dust that's being carried in the wind. We begin to recognize it. And then we start to notice all forms are showing us the stillness. Because all forms are returning. They're rising out of it and they're returning to it. So if we listen to the gong, just listen and see if you can follow the sound back into the stillness. Now when I do this, I want you to notice that there is a moment in which there is just stillness. And then there are all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of other things will start moving in. Feeling tones, whatever. But I want you to notice something very funny about this. The stillness is still there, even if those things start moving. Okay? So, I want you to, first of all, pay very meticulous attention to the sound of the gong. And notice, it is constantly coming into being. Constantly new.
And now this voice arises. The stillness is still here. There is a there is a funny thing though that happens with when listening to the gong. If you hear it as a continuity of sound, like one sound that's moving, then when you get to the stillness, you tend to fall into a continuity of stillness, which is a sort of uh, it's a, it's a imaginary distinction that's being drawn. So it's much more useful to just be aware of the gong arising just now. Recognize it's always new. It takes a little practice, but it is something that you can discover for yourself. It's not that difficult. And it's very helpful. Very helpful to see this. The stillness is always here. And then we can notice that whatever is arising, the sound of a bird, car horn, it's arising out of stillness and returning once again. And if you allow your attention to follow, just like as we did with the gong, follow the sound back, you find that you follow it back into the stillness itself. Just as Lao Tzu describes in the Tao Te Ching, he says, the myriad creatures all rise together, and I watch their return. Returning to one's roots is known as stillness. So if you allow your attention to follow phenomena, they bring us back to the truth, to the oneness of things, the source of all things. Thoughts, they're doing it all the time. They are showing us when the thought thought stops, Nope, nobody got up and walked out. <laughs> Thought stops right there. We have the opportunity to recognize. Awareness of stillness is really the prerequisite for awakening, for realization. The thing is, though, stillness is always here. So it only takes a moment, just a, you know, a, a moment of, of the mind going blank, just for a moment, no grasping, no wanting. And in that moment, we have the opportunity to realize. Realization cannot be brought about by human hands, by any effort. So it needs to happen spontaneously. But in order for it to happen, there needs to be a non-distracted moment to recognize stillness. And in that moment, attention needs to be as sublime as the stillness. Without distraction, resting in the stillness completely so that the attention actually recognizes itself as stillness. There is a tendency, though, for attention to be distracted, and it's sometimes very helpful 
when the Zen master blows out a candle and the student that's very close, that's resting in stillness, blows out a candle and the, patient, the, the, the student wakes up. So in the moment of recognizing stillness, like when you are aware of stillness, the sense of, like when we listen to the gong and we follow it to the end and there's the stillness. If you recognize that that stillness, the awareness of that stillness is the stillness, (laughs) there is a morsel of truth in that. If you recognize that, that in itself could bring us to an awakening. But then, in that, it's kind of a first phase of it. In that first phase of awakening, we still need to see something, a form of some kind, and recognize that that form is also just this stillness, just this awareness, kind of as we've been talking. And in that, then, when the Buddha held up the flower, for his audience of monks and nuns. And Maha Kashyapa suddenly stood up and smiled, bowed, and walked out. He was in a state of stillness, a state of kenosis, a state of unknowing. And then he saw this. And he recognized it is stillness. It is, it is the ground of being. And he awakened. I have a quote I'd like to read you. It's by Zen Master Dogen. And he says, It is worth noticing that what you think one way or another is not a help for realization then you are cautious not to be small-minded. If realization came forth by the power of your prior thoughts, it would not be trustworthy. Realization does not depend on thoughts, but comes forth from beyond them. Realization is helped only by the power of realization Questions or comments? <laughs> I thought that was excellent. Yeah, I did too. I thought it was very great. <laughs> Thank you. You're you know, welcome. yesterday I was um, sitting outside and just, you know, in the, such a beautiful sunny day, and I was able to uh, do a little gardening and play the guitar outside, and then I was just uh, sitting in the sun and all these birds were visiting our yard, and I was so uh, amazed of the bird sounds. <laughs> Not quite like that. But um, I was just um, kind of in awe, but this relaxed uh, of how easy it is for there to be absolutely no thoughts for so long in the midst of nature if you're just enjoying yourself 
without wanting anything else. There wasn't anything else to want. Want it was an absolute perfect. I, I could not have asked for anything more. I had the sun. I was warm. I had the beauty. I had the birds. I. It was perfect. This is interesting because. The trees aren't trying to tell you stuff, you know, when you're out in the forest. You know, they're just being what they are. And they kind of help you be what you are a little bit. You kind of feel it. When we feel joy of appreciating the beauty of the moment, it's always useful to look at those times when it's not beautiful and it's difficult and we're having a hard time. Because those are actually not different. And we discover that. We find that out when we start to look. Our sorrow. Resting attention in sorrow. Sweetness. Just being with it. So the question then, the practice question is, to examine in your life, when you experience something like what uh, Kathy just mentioned, or when you experience something like a beautiful sunset, and you feel that joy what is it that keeps you from noticing that in other times in your life? What is it? And to pay attention, not to try to answer it with some kind of a story, but to look. What is that? And whatever that is, is, is calling you to be examined, to be looked at, to be allowed into your attention, to be felt just as it is, without pulling away, without denying it. And only when we do that, without denying, does it show you it's truth. It's okay. It's all suchness. It's all this stillness manifesting. Somebody else have something? I thought I saw another. Yeah. I am... been involved with CSS going on 11 years, and um, I find that I, through through what, what I've been going through with reading and going to classes and uh, retreats, and um, I, I really have a really clear uh, understanding of conditioning, um, and I'm seeing the failings of, you know, like everything I've ever taught was hearsay. You know, it's like uh, truth change. I've seen in my age many truths change, medical truths, any truth, and um, and I, I'm I think I'm approaching that state of mind that Joel has talked about bewilderment. How, how long would one have to stay in there? <laughs> You're not alone. This is this. A lot of folks experience the same kind of thing. But you see, there is a, there is a, there's something afoot right in the midst of wanting to not be bewildered. There's a sense of, I don't like this. I, I don't want to be bewildered. I, that's not, it's not what I paid for. It's not what I, what I got this for. But you see, right there, you can, you can examine bewilderment. What does it feel like to be confused? To be totally totally lost. And what's interesting, if you really rest in that, just let it be there. Take some time and work with it. 
Bring it in as your object. Allow your attention to stabilize in concentration practice. And for the last 15 minutes of your practice, look at your confusion. Feel what it feels like to be bewildered, lost. Aww. <laughs> Feel that. That's a good idea. Open your heart to it. Let it be there. And it will inform you. There will be some informing taking place. You may not notice what it is, particularly, at least in that moment. But this is the process. If we listen to the mind, the mind has always got an opinion about everything. <laughs> and what we want to look at is that opinion. Because generally speaking, our beliefs are just stories. And they're not based on anything tangible. It's like... A lot of science is that way. We make a big assumption, and then from that assumption we start looking at things. But we have overlooked some very basic things at the beginning, like things like, are there actually self separate selves here? Or you know, questions like, well, what is gravity? Well, we just assume that gravity is something that we understand, but then when we look, well, maybe it's not quite. It's all that way. Yes. Everything is that way. And, and just as you were saying, you start to see that, it all starts to break down. But what isn't breaking down is that bewilderment. So that needs to be looked at. Okay. So take a look. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Anybody else? That's, yes. Um, well, I was... When you talked about striving, and that's that, that striving, and I strive... I have strived for a long time. <laughs> and so when I was and I've been reading some Buddhist texts about just noticing instead of striving, just to become aware, like what you were just talking about. And I keep thinking, well surely there's something that I have to do something about. If it's something bad enough, you know, if it's something that's gonna impact others, then yeah. I need to look at that. You definitely I, do. And I need to change it. Yeah. I can't just yeah. notice it. Yes. Yeah, so this are this you true. saying that no just by noticing it or becoming aware of it, it, it does change. We begin to discover our struggling is is unnecessary. And then we can come up with ways to modify our behavior okay. as we go along more and more. And after a while, suddenly a big hunk of it will just drop out, just from seeing. But, but it is true that in worldly conventional life, it's necessary. We do need to deal with circumstances. It's like when you're driving a car, you have to be, you have to be present. If you've been listening to Joel and reading Buddhist and the other mystics, you know what to look for. All you need to do is bring it into your direct experience and see for yourself. And I heard you saying, too, to be looking at yourself with compassion so that you're not beating. I wouldn't be beating myself up as I'm noticing these things I have to change, but to be kind and compassionate Absolutely. to myself as, it, as I notice it, too, which is really helpful. Yes. Very kindness helpful. is a huge, and yeah. really, without kindness, right. realization is not possible. Mm -hmm. Two wings of love and truth, mm -hmm. and without both wings, it don't fly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Your talk today just answers for me. Actually, it stopped all the questions and and helped me to just be some things that you had told me before that I didn't understand why it worked. 
And uh, I, I was, a few days ago, I frantically asked you, <laughs> called you, and asked you for some advice as a caregiver, and please solve this problem, and you were telling me things. And I was saying, just please give me an example. And you said to me, well, I, something like stepping back, something about stepping back and getting silent and whatever, and I said, okay, it's just about me not having to solve this problem, whatever, but it really didn't feel, I just thought, okay, well, I'll go with that. I didn't know, I didn't have a clue how it was going to solve my problem. I'd been frantic about it for hours. And uh, I just pulled into the parking lot and I went in and I found that just stepping back and letting everything happen, all the ways that I thought I needed to cover the situation, didn't have any purpose at all. And now today, hearing your talk, I understand why that worked and why it turned out it was just an absolutely, it turned out to be an absolutely perfect situation. Everything happened as it needed to, all problems got solved, and I had stepped back. And now I know why. And this is just it. You know, when we have a question, sometimes it's, it's really necessary to ask, um, and it's helpful to ask. But a lot of times when you have a spiritual question, run it by your own true inner authority, because it is there. Be careful that you don't stumble into the mind's territory, though. And this, this goes back to what I was talking about, this clear awareness. You want to... Just look at it impartially. And just look and recognize the question itself is showing you something. You ask the question and let be. Just be quiet and listen. That's what you say. And that's what you discover. You discover it will... You, consciousness informs itself. Yes. Very good point. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you're you welcome. for today. Thank you're welcome. Anybody else? Yes, Barb. Uh, in, in our class, we're, we're looking at blaming and um, in our lives how we, we use that or, and do that all the time, or we may do that all the time in our lives, or, or, or rather let me just say how we do, if, if we do that. And for myself, I do. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that drove me here was I was just so fed up with seeing myself the way it was and couldn't didn't know how to leave that or do it without once more punishing myself or criticizing or judging myself and I could do that very well. And and so since since I've been working with that with, with our class, it's not and i what I've been doing is watching it. That's all. And what has happened just recently and I, I just noticed it just this week. Everything's it's gotten quieter. The voice, the, the, the hit of it has just, it hasn't changed, it hasn't gone away, but it's not as sturdy and as loud. It's not that it isn't believable, and I still do it. Oh, yeah. But something has changed. That's, that's great. Now, the fact that it's continuing to go on, that's not a bad thing, because it's continuing to inform you of something, because you're paying attention. See, this is the way it works. If, if you're resisting it, then it's just a big problem. But if you're paying attention, then it's actually informing you. And, and, and it's actually wonderful. The more it's got, the more you can listen. And, it, and as you listen in that way, you begin to... Well, first of all, that distracted mind settles down more and more. And then 
you, you don't care so much what it's saying after a while. It just isn't that important. It's just a chattery mind. You discover that. But how else do you discover it other than having it happen? And so it, it has its blessing, right? It's, it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, you, you said at some point, um, it's all the same. So I guess whether it seems good or seems bad, it's, it's all the same. And a um, long time ago, I went to a presence seminar. Uh, I, I forget the name of it. But the one thing that stuck with me is something that needs to be done just needs to be done. You know, don't, don't resist it. And I find myself resisting having to go to my office and grade papers on a Sunday because the weather is so beautiful. And then I thought, okay, well, it's just got to be done. And so I tried to sh shut off my negative mind, and I, uh, a couple, three weekends ago, I went in on Sunday. Big, big building. It's, it's uh, Agate Building that used to be a boys' and girls' school. It's a huge building. And um, I got there, and uh, the... There is nobody there. It was a desert, and usually it's teeming with people. It's noisy. Uh, it, it's 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 just uh, frustrating to be. Everybody's busy, and I went in there, and it was dead quiet. And I thought, wow, what a neat space. It's it's <laughs> huge and quiet, and I'm the only one here. And then I went and sat at my desk and just appreciated the chaotic mess of my piles of papers, and, uh, which usually make me upset. But now it's like, I, I'm the only one here. I can just relax in this mess. And then I started reading my students' papers and noticing all their different handwritings. And, and just uh, every student is different, and um, they're, they write about the same thing, but they have different ways of making uh, the same mistake and, and it just became <laughs> it just became so interesting to, to be there because I had the time to notice that is great that is great that's exactly what this is you know it's it's like when the mind starts going on about how it doesn't want to do something just notice that and then do what you're doing and you can notice that you know there's a there's a certain quality about the the resisting mind that after a while, you know, it's kind of funny. It's kind of humorous quality. It's just always in the background going, ah, oh, it's like throwing a tantrum. But you're just doing it anyway. It's like when you go to sit in the morning and your mind's going, I'm not sitting today. I'm just not doing it. And you do it anyway, and it's a powerful experience. The mind's going, nope, not doing it. And you just, you get your cushion, and you just go in there. Oh, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And you put your cushion down, and you sit down, and you meditate. And what that does is that the ego doesn't know what to do with that. And, and, and it's kind of a breakthrough in a way when that starts to happen. And just like your experience, you end up there and it's, oh, what a blessing. Here, it's so quiet. Now, what if you had just said, well, I'm not going in there. And those students are just going to have to wait for their grades. <laughs> yeah, and then it just, be, it just builds up. And you just have to do it on Monday. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Students are making even more errors. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Anybody else? 
we're getting kind of long enough. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I had a resistance this morning. First, I didn't meditate because I thought, oh, we're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that was the first thing. And then I was expecting Joel, and then he's not oh, here. Oh, man. <laughs> and then it was um, kind of the lecture format that is why I'm here is to get away from that kind of thing, you know, with the lectern. And so this, the whole thing was like... That's great. That's good stuff. Now, that's the stuff you want to see. And it's perfect. You know, Joel probably should not be here a lot more, and, and then that would help you come to terms with that resisting mind. And we see more and more, we see our likes and dislikes are just conditioned process. Anybody else here? I was, um, two quick things. One was one reason why I think that meditation, people get to a point of thinking meditation isn't doing anything, is because it truly is too simple. And for me, I keep on like, uh, you know, getting to a space of uh, present moment awareness, and I was like, oh, this is too simple, this can't be it. So then I'm really trying to get more than that, and it really is just present moment awareness. So I thought that was It is. But in that present moment awareness, that's that's really our opportunity because then comes up the thing of, well, I'm waiting. I mean, is this it? I mean, is this it? Is this present moment? So then you have the opportunity to see the mind. You see these emotions that start to bubble up, just like what she was saying. They start coming up, and it's like, oh, it's going to ruin my day. And we feel that, you know? It's like, oh, no, it's all... Everything's a mess now. <laughs> we have these expectations about everything, and we can't be present for what's here. can't be present for just the, the naked experience, because we're very, we're very unsettled by naked experience. Because it doesn't necessarily conform to our image of what we're expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a, um, a moment, uh, or a, there was a present moment awareness many years ago, and it's still with me and comes back to me all the time. And when you're talking about it, I'm, trying, I'm thinking, you know, what was that about? Why is that still in my head? What is, you know, what is the message from that? present moment awareness, and it's not a present moment awareness any longer. Right. What is it? It's thought. It's thoughts and memories and stories. But at the time that it happened, you had, a, you had an insight. Something happened. You felt an epiphany. Is that right, or am I off, off the track here? I didn't have any thought. I, like, <laughs> if you had no thought, you wouldn't be able to talk about it now. So something came up at the time. Oh, okay. I was completely, totally happy. I was completely, totally in the moment. Yes. It was a perfect, perfect moment. Yes. And it wasn't because I expected it or planned it or anything. It was just like right there. And it's, it, it's just stayed in my... Yeah. So that moment is this moment. Right now. It's the same moment. But the reason you don't recognize it is for all the reasons that we've discussed here. First of all, we have a memory of it. We remember having this experience, which is not the experience, as you said. And so it becomes a sort of a veil. And 
what I recommend, and, and you know, following the sound back to the stillness is, is, is something you can do, but also recognize the story about that experience and recognize what is there between those thoughts, at the end of those thoughts. Recognize the stillness, the timeless moment is here now. Do you have a regular meditation practice that you do? Okay. I recommend that you really settle into a practice and really develop some commitment to it. And with that commitment, there will be a deepening of this ability to have this non-tainted awareness so that you really are seeing into the nature of your experience. And it's that kind of seeing that allows us to recognize the, the coming and the going of phenomena and to drop beneath that. And then we discover that timeless moment. Okay, so let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stick around and uh, have some tea. And until we meet again, peace to you all. <laughs>